Join me, if you would, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Last week we looked at the first half of this chapter together, and here today we want to draw our attention to the second half. Uh, If you were here last week, I began by asking uh, this type of question. Can you imagine the lively debate that we would have today if I were to just ask uh, our our congregation to uh, kind of debate and discuss some very controversial topics and questions together? Things like this, should a Christian attend a homosexual sibling's wedding? Should a Christian drink alcoholic beverages or get tattoos or uh, how should they educate their children? Where should dating boundaries be drawn specifically or should a church have multiple services or even be multi-site? And obviously we talked about last week how you could obviously throw many, many COVID questions in there as well. Should a Christian get vaccinated? Should a church submit to the government when the government expects this, that or the other? Any of those questions would make for lively church discussion. And we would all know by experience that Christians feel deeply and very often differently on a variety of such issues, particularly those that are unclear uh, or not specified or legislated in Scripture. And some of the things that we might feel different about uh, may be relatively minor, and other things have huge, huge implications. The Corinthians had a question that they were asking, an issue that they were working through. Should a Christian eat meat that has been offered to an idol? And last week I quoted or kind of tried to summarize what one pastor has said about these types of issues. He said there are many matters that are not specified in Scripture, which we certainly know that to be true. But they are nonetheless scriptural issues. We're trying to sort through them with our Bibles. And they are often significant issues. And uh, because they are due to the nature of these types of things, they typically don't have short answers. They typically do not have simple answers. Uh, The answers are often very complex due to the complexity of the question. And the answers, they're actually not always the same. As we'll see here in 1 Corinthians with meat offered to idols, Paul's going to say, okay, well, we need to back up on this issue. And it's going to depend on the context and the specific situation. So if it's in the marketplace, you should do this. Um, if, if meat offered to idols, if the question is about should you go to an idol's temple and eat that meat there, well, then you should do this. Or if your friend invites you over for dinner, well, you should do this. But if he says this, maybe you should do that. And the answer is not the same every single time due to the complexity of the situation. So the context of variety of variables matter. And we would conclude from that that as we discuss these things and work through them, uh, right answers to these questions often require a great deal of self-mistrust. You know, maybe, maybe I haven't quite thought through this all the way. Um, maybe, maybe I don't have all the information. Uh, maybe I need to listen to what my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ are saying. How should Christians wrestle through these types of of difficult questions and matters of Christian liberty and things like that. Well, you must navigate difficult issues God's way, which is what chapter 8 is all about. I want to read this whole chapter as we begin this morning. Paul writes, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, 
Not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no better, we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, and the, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Uh, as Christians discuss and decide difficult issues and they make statements about those things, there are often two missing ingredients. And we saw the first last week was an attitude. It's the attitude of love. And an action flows from that attitude, which we want to look at today, a second missing ingredient, which we'll get to in just a moment. But the first one, uh, just to kind of bring us up to speed from last week, the first missing ingredient was love. Love is needed to decide difficult issues and navigate difficult things. What many of the Corinthians had was knowledge of a certain set of facts pertaining uh, to the situation, but what they lacked was love. And Paul drives home the point, it's not that your knowledge in and of itself is bad, but knowledge alone is not enough to navigate difficult issues. You also need love. Knowledge by itself, uh, if that's all you have, you've got some serious liabilities. Namely, your knowledge can puff you up and, and it can also tear other people down and uh, also, verses 2 to 3, your knowledge can be incomplete. You may not have all the facts. You may have not thought about this aspect of theology or that aspect of theology. And, and furthermore, Paul says, your knowledge can be spot on. The Corinthians was, but as we saw, it was incomplete. And it was also laced with pride. So knowledge alone is not enough to navigate difficult issues. Knowledge must be applied by love to navigate those issues. So love is needed. That's the first missing ingredient. It's an attitude, but today we want to note that there's also an action, a missing ingredient that goes with that attitude, and that action is care. That's the second missing ingredient. Care is needed to navigate difficult issues. Verse 9 reads this way, but take care, that's our word, take care that this right of yours, this uh, theological right or freedom that you have to eat meat offered to an idol, take care that that right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That's an action. There, there's something, if, if you love your brother, there's something that you need to do. You will take care to consider his spiritual situation and his spiritual well-being as you navigate difficult issues. I believe verses 7 to 13 provide at least six ways that you can do that as you approach these sorts of things. And as I mentioned, some of these, the ramifications are relatively small. And for other things, the ramifications are enormous. So let's look together at six ways to care. Here's the first one. Recognize that you are part of a larger community. Uh, verse 7 begins this way. However, okay, so point of contrast here, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, however, not all possess this knowledge. And with that simple stroke of the pen, Paul invites the Corinthians. He says, guys, why don't you... Look up and take a look around you for a moment. And then he goes on to warn them that their individual decisions are going to impact uh, the larger community. The Corinthians were arguing 
uh, back in verse 1, they were saying, all of us possess this knowledge about meat offered to idols. We've, we've, we've wrestled through this. We, we've thought through it theologically. We've got it figured out. Here's what we know. Verse 4, an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. Okay, so based on those facts, that's why we think it would be okay to eat meat offered to an idol in an idol's temple. And then Paul opens up their eyes in verse 7. He says, however, guys, not all possess that knowledge. Therefore, if you go into a pagan temple and you eat meat offered to an idol there, you're going to actually do some major spiritual damage, perhaps even irreparable spiritual damage to your brother. Oh, maybe the Corinthians hadn't thought about that. You need to recognize that you are a part of a larger community. You are a part of a local church where not everyone thinks just like you think. And not everybody feels just like you feel. And not everyone can do the same things that that you could do and do those same things in good conscience without sinning. There may actually be things that you could do and, and do those things and not sin. And for your brother to do those exact same things, he'd be sinning. Your decisions, even on matters that are not categorically right or wrong, and decisions related to your personal conscience, those decisions impact other people within the church. Uh, The individual decisions that you make will impact other people within the body. And this would be true being part of a family, even for a child. The decisions that any one of my children make will impact the rest of us. It's certainly true for me as the head of my home. If uh, tomorrow's my day off, if I get off in the morning or get up in the morning and say, well, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to take the whole day off for myself. I'm not going to help around the house. This is going to be a Nate day. (laughs) Good luck, everybody else. This is my day. Well, that's going to have an impact, isn't it? My wife's going to be trying to take care of all the kids and do everything on her own, and I'm just loafing around doing whatever it is I want to do. Well, when I do that, that impacts other people. Any situation in which you live in any kind of family or larger group, what you do impacts everybody else. And that's what Paul is trying to highlight for these people. Care is needed to navigate difficult issues. Recognize that you're part of a larger community. You're part of a spiritual family. And as you try to decide what to do uh, as regards difficult situations and decisions, it would be good for you to ask questions like this. How will my decision or what I'm thinking maybe I should do here, how will this spiritually impact the people in my local church and perhaps even the church at large or within my local community? And how will dogmatically asserting my views impact other people? These are the types of questions that we want to ask. Paul gets a little more specific, though, as he offers a second way to care. Recognize that each of your brothers has a pre-conversion past. Look at verse 7. However, not all of us possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. Paul quickly pointed out that in their past Uh, pre-Christ life. Some of the Corinthians had associations with certain sins that made them uniquely vulnerable to certain sins in the present. And if you're going to love your brother, you need to recognize that, that, that my brother or sister in Christ, they have a past before Jesus. And like all the rest of us, it's probably not very pretty. Your brother might have former associations with particular sins. Verse 7 mentions Uh, of some of the Corinthians that they had former association with idols. God saved many of the Corinthians out of complete and total paganism. 
They grew up worshiping idols and believing that they were real and maybe even thinking that they had experienced those gods as real in their life. When I did this, this God gave me his favor and blessing and this God did this. And when I did this, judgment fell. This, this idol was in my past former life real to me. And the effect of this is that your brother might be uniquely prone to present sin. If your brother, Paul says, goes to an idol's temple for something as simple as a harvest party, the community's gathering around celebrating the fact that the crops were great this year. When he goes to that celebration, he's very likely uh, to do what according to verse 7? Well, verse 7, he's likely to eat food as really offered to an idol or as if it was really offered to an idol. In a word, what sin would that be? If your brother goes and does that, What sin is he committing? Idolatry. He commits the sin of idolatry. You could go eat that meat and you're not committing idolatry. In your mind, you're like, I don't know what they're doing with that statue over there. I don't really care. I'm just really excited about the free meat. The buffet is amazing. And your brother, on on the flip side of that, he, he can't do that. He goes in there and finds himself committing idolatry. And so I'd invite you to, even this morning, to take a look around this room and I would ask you this, who do you see sitting here? What's their story? And you may go, I, I don't know. Can you share the detailed pre-conversion story of bondage of every person in this room? No, you can't. And I can't do that either. I, I could share some stories and parts of stories and things that I know. There's things that you know. But some people sitting here have things in their past that you've never heard of. And good chance you never will. Your brother or sister in Christ may have a past with certain sins and be accustomed to to certain things and certain sins. And God says that you should take care not to endanger your brother spiritually through the exercise of your Christian freedoms. Care is desperately needed to navigate difficult issues. Recognize that each of your brothers has a pre-conversion past and it may look very different than than yours. You may be susceptible over here and he or she is susceptible over here or there. As you try to decide what to do, it would be good to ask questions like this. Does the exercise of this particular freedom, something that I, before God I could maybe legitimately do, without sinning, it's all fine, it's all good, but would the exercise of this particular freedom actually uh, have the potential to do spiritual damage to another Christian brother due to his past life? And if so, how can I take care to love and spiritually protect him and, and not be reckless and not not really put him in a dangerous, dangerous situation. Third way to care. Recognize that some of your brothers have what this text calls uh, weak consciences. Look at verse 7 again. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Uh, What is a weak conscience? It's something that I think if you've been around church very long, you'll hear people talk about. What is it? Well, could we define it based on the text? Could we define it based on verse 7? According to the context, a weak conscience is a conscience that in some way, shape, or form is uninformed of biblical truth. In this setting, it's a conscience that doesn't know two things in particular from verse 4. It's a conscience that is uninformed about the fact that an idol has no real existence. That, that statue over there, that God that everyone's offering meat to as a sacrifice, 
It doesn't have any real existence. And number two from verse four, there's no God but one. That idol, it's nothing, literally nothing. But some of the Corinthians either didn't know those truths at all, or I think what actually might be really likely is that they hadn't, even though maybe they knew those truths, they hadn't been able fully to appropriate those truths in their experience. One's feelings in one's head could be in two totally different spots. And most of us have probably experienced something like this. Uh, my wife, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so, had arranged to pick up some kids' clothes uh, from someone online. And so we all drive there. I think our whole family was in the van. And uh, she went up and got these clothes or bag of clothes from the door and hopped back in the van. And as we're driving away, she starts to open up the bag and go through it. And at the bottom of this bag of kids' clothes, she pulls out an idol. It's just this piece of plastic with some deity on there. And I saw that thing and, oh, I think that's an idol. If you were me in that situation, what would you have done with that thing in that very moment and why would you have done it? Well, it immediately made me uncomfortable. I mean, like my day was going great and now I have an idol in my van with my family. This is awesome. <laughs> okay, so you're in that situation and on, on the one hand, I, I don't like this at all. I, I, this is not good. And so on the one hand, I almost roll down the window as I'm driving away, rip that thing out of my wife's hand, chuck it out the window into the ditch, just get rid of it. I do not need that thing in my life. I do not need that thing in my family. It felt dangerous and it felt defiling in some way. But then I thought, on the other hand, you know, this is stupid. This is not a big deal. You know, it's just, I'm looking at this thing. All this is, is a stupid little piece of plastic that's probably not worth 25 cents. And on this piece of plastic is the picture of some pagan deity. I, I don't even know its name. It's nothing. That God on there is nothing. It's not a big deal. I, I could probably just wait till we get home. I'll throw it in the garbage and then I'll take the garbage out. End of story. Not a problem. Not a big deal. But in that moment, and I think you could appreciate this because you've probably had moments like that, I was inwardly conflicted because intellectually I knew one thing. This is stupid. It's not a big deal. Not a problem. That thing's not even real. And yet I felt something different in the inside. And that seems, I think, what was probably very likely going on in Corinth. It wasn't that all these people came to Christ and didn't know that he was the only true God. But they had a past that really left them in internal turmoil when they were in context like that. Uh, weak, uninformed consciences put people in a place where, where they were sinning in Corinth. And consequently, their consciences became defiled or guilty. So care is desperately needed to navigate difficult issues. You need to recognize that some of your brothers have weak consciences that are uninformed theologically or their theology hasn't permeated their, their, their soul or their, their inward parts yet, even if it's in their head. As you try to decide what to do on difficult issues, it would be good to ask questions like this. How will my decision or actions impact a brother or sister in Christ with what this, this verse calls a weak conscience? And how should that impact my decision, if, if in any way at all? I don't want to be reckless. I, I love my brother. Even if I have some freedom, I want to exercise it carefully or limit it so that I'm loving this person. I think we're prone to ask a different type of question, though. Another question comes to mind uh, right away. Well, okay, so how, if my brother has a weak conscience, that kind of sounds bad. Like, 
it seems like what would be better if he had a strong conscience. So how can I make my brother's weak conscience strong like mine is so that he knows that it actually would be okay for him to walk into that temple, eat that meat, recognizing that that idol's nothing, even though it was from your past. Like it's literally nothing. And he could eat it with me in a good conscience and not be sinning. How could I get him there? How do I impart knowledge to him so that he becomes more spiritually mature and strong like me? Well, according to verse 8, though, um, that's not the goal. And so we come with, to a fourth way to care that I think is so important. Recognize that spirituality does not require conformity to your view. Verse 8 begins with an overarching principle where Paul says food will not commend us to God. When it comes to meat offered idols, what a person eats or doesn't eat brings neither God's favor nor his judgment. It, it's, a, it's a neutral matter uh, in and of itself. Your brother is no worse off for abstaining from meat, and he's no better off if he eats it. You might think, well, no, he would be better off if he could get to this point and he could do this or, or whatever else. The strong person naturally gravitates towards thinking like this. It's a matter of indifference. It doesn't matter, so you should be okay with doing it. I think Paul is trying to address something very practical. You remember back in verse 1 that Paul explained that knowledge has a way, if we're not careful, our knowledge, our theological knowledge, as we try to navigate these issues, it has a way of puffing us up and making us proud and inflating us. And sometimes what happens when, when strong people exercise a Christian liberty, that is indeed a liberty, they feel better or superior to the quote-unquote weak one who does not do that with them or does not feel like they can. And the ultimate goal often then becomes strengthening the weak. But if it's truly a matter of indifference, it's neither morally right nor wrong in and of itself. If, if it's truly a matter of indifference in a person standing with God, then why would the goal become changing that person? Paul's logic goes like this. You, you can't say to your weaker brother, listen, it's not a big deal to eat meat offered to idols and then turn around and say to him, well, actually, it kind of is a big deal. Like You should probably be doing it with us. You can't do that. If you were stronger spiritually, you can't say it's a big deal. You know, if you were stronger spiritually and didn't have a weak conscience, you would join us in a good conscience. No, Paul says, it's a matter of indifference, so don't make it a differentiating matter. When it comes to matters of neutrality, you need to make sure that you don't think or talk as if spirituality equals conformity to your view. And I think that's exactly what we do. Uh, I, I think just a way to try to illustrate this in a way that's pretty fresh in all of our minds, I, I think the vaccine situation is a great illustration of this. Um, and, and just a couple of preliminary clarifications. What I'm about to say, I, I'm not saying it, uh, I'm not speaking about the rightness or wrongness of the government. That's a huge other discussion. And also you have people with their consciences. Uh, Romans says, if you can't do something in faith, it's a sin for you. And there are people who, with something like the vaccine, go, I cannot do that in good faith before God. They should not do it. That would be a sin. But with some of those clarifications aside, as, as co are COVID matters, maybe I could ask this question. Are, are COVID vaccines, might we say that they are a morally neutral matter? Well, you probably have some feelings about that, right? 
But maybe in other words, I could ask it this way. In our current situation, if a person does or does not get vaccinated, would either of those be uh, categorically bring someone under God's favor or under God's judgment? And maybe we could even probe at it a little further, get at it this way. Not a perfect way to get at it, but I think a, a helpful thought process. Would we exercise church discipline one way or the other? So, for example, <laughs> we say this. You didn't get vaccinated. You're clearly not loving your brother and your neighbor. You're obviously unrepentant of that. Therefore, we are going to remove you and we are going to discipline you out of our church. Would we do that? No way. <laughs> no, we wouldn't do that. Okay, flip it around. Would we say, you got vaccinated? Are you kidding me? You caved and you followed a tyrannical, godless government. And after you got your first jab, we confronted you one-on-one. -on -one, and we tried to deal with that. And we thought you were repentant. And then we saw you walking around Walmart with a Band-Aid on your upper arm, obviously showing it off, proving that you were not repentant. And then you got the third booster shot. Clearly, you are not a repentant person. We're going to have to remove you from our body. Would we do that? No. I mean, that would, that would be crazy. We wouldn't think of doing either of those things. Why is that? Because we would recognize on something that all of us, I think probably all, all feel very emotionally charged and have strong feelings about. We would recognize that, that that is a matter that really comes down to a person's conscience before God. But what's our common propensity? Well, if it's, if it's really a matter that does not impact a person's standing before God, then that's exactly what it, it should be. If it's really a matter of, um, I'd use the word indifference, and I don't mean that in a, oh, it just doesn't matter at all sort of way, but if it's a matter of indifference in a person's standing with God, then that's exactly what it should be. Which would mean something like this, that, that your friends and your family and your fellow Christians shouldn't be championed for one action or criticized, condemned, and diminished for the other. I mean, think about what it would be like if in all the controversy that, that has gone on in our world, I mean, obviously, you walk out of these walls and you say, oh, I'm vaccinated or I'm not. People are going <laughs> to, you're going to get it from one side or the other, like pretty hard. But what if in, in the family of God, that wasn't a thing. What if it was, hey, regardless of, of what you've decided personally, I welcome you, as Romans talks about, and you're my brother. And, and these are not the sort of thing. I'm not trying to get you to, to, to my view. You're not trying to get me to, to, or vice versa. As if that's what needs to happen. And that's the type of point that Paul is making here with meat offered to idols. If this is truly a matter of indifference, then treat it that way. Don't make it a thing. And as we'll see in a moment, if, if it's not that big of a deal with meat offered to idols, he's even going to say to them, maybe you should be willing to totally give that up. If you're like me, you might wonder this. If a person's conscience is weak, meaning that it's not accurately calibrated to Scripture, well, then wouldn't it be helpful to try to help them calibrate it? I mean, that actually seems loving to me. And I think the answer to that question is something like this. Well, potentially, but that's certainly not the ultimate goal. And there's a big difference between encouraging someone to calibrate their conscience and pressuring calibration. Uh, your conscience, 
I think biblically, if we were to look at it from several different texts, it's like an instrument that needs calibrated to a standard. Okay, so if your conscience is an instrument, what standard does it need calibrated to? The word of God. Now, you think about your bathroom scales, they need calibrated to zero, right? If they're, if they're calibrated to like minus three and you hop on the scales, you're not getting an accurate reading. And if, if your scales are calibrated like t- plus 20 when you, set on, or when you step on those scales, you're like, whoa, I weigh a little more than I thought I did, right? You need those scales set to zero. But there are some tools and instruments that you can calibrate quickly, and, and your scales would be a great illustration of that. You just you just grab the little knob at the bottom, click, 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 and you set it back exactly to zero, boom, done. Just like that. But there are other instruments that, that you can't calibrate them quickly unless you run the risk of completely and totally breaking them. So, for example, uh, I think there were, there's a guitar sitting over there. What if it was minus 40 out this morning, and that guitar uh, came in the trunk of someone's car, came in here and that thing is cold and whoever's playing it goes to tune up for the the morning and try to get their guitar to match whatever note on the piano and as they strum they go wow this is awful this is way out of tune i need to tune this or i need to calibrate this well they can't just grab one of the knobs up at the top and crank 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 oh got it done if you do that that string ping no no the instrument has to warm up it needs to be done a little bit at a time until it gets there and the conscience is often that way. It often can't be tuned or calibrated, boom, just like that overnight. And so it's one thing to encourage calibration. You might be able to have meaningful conversations with a friend about their position. You might be able to ask gentle but probing questions. But, but you don't want to pressure it. That seems to be what's going on in 1 Corinthians 8 and with destructive, destructive results. Uh, it reminds me a bit... I have uh, an old tractor. It's a 1950. It's a little tractor. It's 1951 Ford 8 in. It's got no paint on it. It's an awesome little thing. Uh, it's 70 years old now. It's still going strong. It runs great. There's nothing wrong with my tractor, but I know better than to cold start it at minus 40 and just start driving away and using the thing, working it hard. Oh, I've got two feet of snow in my driveway. I better plow. Better get to it. Start it right up. Here we go. You wouldn't do that with your car, right? When, when, when you use a piece of equipment like that, you're probably something's going to give, something's going to break. Instead, what I would do is I would plug it into the block heater for a couple hours, and then I would start it. And then after starting it, I'd probably let it, let it run for 10 minutes, maybe longer, and let all the fluids, the oil pan, all that get warmed up, and the hydraulic fluid, all that needs to warm up before I put that instrument to use, or else it might break beyond repair. And the conscience can be like that. And sometimes what needs to happen is it needs to warm up to certain biblical truths. And sometimes that even takes years for truths that are known to, to really permeate within to where the conscience is free. And a person can safely engage in, in certain activities. And if you pressure your brother, you might do irreparable spiritual damage. Care is needed to decide difficult issues. Recognize that spirituality does not require conformity to your view. And that can be said both ways, both the strong and the weak. Do you think that spirituality is somehow conformity to your view with something? And are you doing anything that communicates that to a brother? And are you insisting that certain people do certain things? Fifth way to care, recognize that there's a lot at stake. What are the stakes? 
What might happen if you make difficult decisions in a way that fails to consider your brother's spiritual situation or if you exercise your Christian freedoms recklessly? Well, there's a lot on the line. Look at verses 9 to 12. Paul says this, But take care that this right of yours, this right to eat meat offered to idols, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? And if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul presents a hypothetical situation that may have not actually been all that hypothetical, not really sure. It may have actually been occurring in Corinth. But the weak brother sees you. The knowledgeable brother eating meat at the temple of an idol. And when he sees you doing that, uh, what he sees you doing emboldens or it builds up or it strengthens his conscience to emulate you and do the exact same thing. But when he does that, as we saw in verse 7, he commits idolatry. What's just happened? A former idolater falls back into the grips of the old life of idolatry. Or at least that potential is there. That silly celebration at the idol's temple led to the shipwreck of his faith and his abandoning of Jesus. You might say, you know, (laughs) what you just said there sounds a bit overstated. Well, I would ask you this. What do you think of the word destroyed has reference to in verse 11? That's a strong word. Destroyed. Didn't say damaged. Destroyed. What happened? Well, you thought you were just exercising a freedom or a right from a position of theological knowledge. And in in reality, your actions caused your brother to stumble and get tripped up. Verse 9, the stumbling block idea. Your brother, his conscience was then emboldened, verse 10, and then your brother was destroyed. And verse 12 talks about how your brother was wounded. And verse 12 also talks about how you sinned against Christ. You did. To sin against one of God's people or his children is to sin against Christ himself. Paul is highlighting the fact that Christ died to bring your brother out of idolatry and you just lived in such a way to bring him right back into it. Care is needed to navigate difficult issues. Recognize that there's a lot at stake. Are you doing anything that if your brother were to emulate you, he would be in ruin? Ruin. And finally, a sixth way to care. Recognize that at times, because of all this, it may be best to limit your rights. Look at verse 13. Therefore, Paul says, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. By the way, that is not your vegan proof text, okay? So don't try to use it that way. Uh, Paul is simply saying that he would go to great lengths and make great sacrifices in the realm of Christian liberty in order to care for the spiritual well-being of his brother in Christ. Are you willing to do that? Jesus gave up his life and blood for your brother. Jesus put it all out there. Everything. His life and blood. And so the question becomes, are you actually willing to give up much lesser things for the spiritual good of that same brother? Care is needed to navigate difficult issues. Recognize that at times it may be best to limit your rights. I think we read a text like this, and much of the world would read this, and it would immediately resonate with their culture, because much of the world still practices 
idolatry in this same type of way. We live in a, a different world here in the West where it's, it's maybe not quite like that. And so maybe some of these things, we're, we're not quite sure to how to navigate them. But I would ask you this, is there any right that you're not willing to give up for the spiritual sake of your weaker brother? Is there anything that you would hold so tightly that you would not be willing to give it up in, on the occasion where that would actually be what was helpful? As we wrap up this morning, I want to take just a moment to, if I could put it this way, try to save this text from a legalistic approach. Uh, this text tends to get applied in a rather legalistic way sometimes. And so I fear that you might be hearing something that neither I nor this text is actually saying. And because of that, I want to clarify a couple things. First, this text and the stumbling block principle are not about, quote unquote, offending someone in the church. And so it should not be applied that way. The concern here is that a weaker brother would emulate your behavior or be encouraged to emulate your behavior to his own spiritual hurt or destruction. Uh, we are not talking here about a bunch of minor peripheral matters. And I think that that really desperately needs clarified about this text. This text and the stumbling block principle are not about offending someone in the church. And number two, this text does not give those who feel quote-unquote offended by certain things grounds then to try to force or expect others to conform to their standards or even their scruples. 1 Corinthians 8 has, it must be interpreted alongside Romans chapter 14, which tells Paul there in that chapter, tells the, the Roman believers to welcome each other despite their differences. Not demand that other people conform to theirs. In other words, uh, the principle here is not that you always set the church's standard or your personal standard to the most conservative person's conscience so that they don't get offended. There's been a tendency based on passages like this to say, hey, you know, let's all sit around our houses and our churches wrapped in bubble wrap and not do anything because someone might not uh, like it or they might be offended or, or they might even leave. And at the end of the day, when you take that approach, which I don't think you can get to justifiably from this text, when you take that approach... You end up with this massive legalistic list of things that Christians and churches shouldn't use or do. Things like, well, you shouldn't use this instrument, or you shouldn't use this music, or that music style, or this Christian artist, or Christian radio, or certain aspects of technology, or certain clothing, or certain jewelry, or certain educational choices, because somebody doesn't like that, or they feel uncomfortable with that. That's not... That's not what this text is about. This whole text has been driving home an attitude. And that attitude in the first six verses is love. And if that attitude is in your heart, you're saying, okay, I, I want to love my brother, which secondly means that I must, in my actions and the exercise of my Christian liberties, I need to take care that I look out for my brother's spiritual well-being so that he doesn't end up in a state of ruin. I need to conduct myself in such a way that is, is careful not to cause spiritual harm to a brother for whom Christ died. Your actions impact others, so choose them carefully. God wants you to navigate difficult issues God's way. And I think we all would do well to just step back and, and, and ask questions like this. Have I been missing the, the, the critical ingredients of love 
and care as I navigate difficult issues, as I exercise my, my Christian liberties and decide what to do and not to do with those things? Am I doing that in a community and doing that in a way that represents love and care for Jesus, first and foremost, and second, for my brother? I would ask you to bow with me at this time, if you would.